for July 18th, 2019. It's the Lullabot Podcast. It's the Lullabot Podcast, episode 238. I'm Matt Cleave, Senior Developer at Lullabot. With me as always, co-host of the show, Senior Frontend Dev, Mike Herschel. Hey, Mike. Hey, good afternoon, Matthew Cleave. Good afternoon, Mike. So we, this is the Lullabot Podcast. We talk about all things Lullabot. Lullabot's a strategy design development company, um, working primarily in Drupal. Yes. And today, we're not talking about Drupal. No, and we're not talking about strategy design. I guess we're talking a little bit about development. Development, that's right. We're going to talk continuous integration, or CI. Yep, so you're going to hear, every, like, for the audience, we're going to be saying the words CI, the letter CI, and that stands for continuous integration. Charlie India. Yep. Or something. <laughs> something like that. And so we got, um, we got three uh, CI experts on the call, all of them. All of them are lullabots. Purported to be. <laughs> lullabots and, yeah. Uh, first up, we have a senior technical architect who uh, lives in London, England, and has an irrational fear of pine cones. Uh, welcome back, Sally Young, who is a senior technical architect. Wow, I can't believe you told the whole internet about that. So, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> That was when I was a child. I'm perfectly fine around pine cones these days. <laughs> all right, all right. Also with us today, coming from Guelph, Ontario, Ontario Canada, <laughs> we have Andrew Berry, a senior architect at Lullabot. Hey, Andrew. Hello. I think that is the first time I've heard someone mispronounce Ontario and not Guelph. So uh, thumbs up to you, Matt. I'm glad I'm here for that. And uh, lastly, but not leastly, we have James Sansbury, who is a development manager, who also tends to do a lot of our continuous integration type tasks. Um, he lives outside of Atlanta in Georgia. Welcome, James. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. So we're talking continuous integration or CI. I remember it's something that was probably first added to a project I was working on, I don't know, a few years ago here at Lullabot. Um, when when did this kind of get started and, and why did it get going? I remember it was it was this magical Jenkins things that Jenkins thing that did stuff for us and it was good, right? Well, before we used to have a folder called scripts. Yeah. And it used to be full of uh, lots of finickety bash scripts that may or may not run on your local depending on what you had installed that day and you'd probably have to grab a load of secret passwords to inject them and they're all sitting around on your laptop and sometimes it would break because you ran something in a different order or you did something differently or you didn't have some environment variable and uh, it was just a recipe for lots of things going wrong so it's good to make things repeatable because they don't get messed up so often and they're a lot easier to debug when something does go bad. I think the other part that's interesting is if you sort of look at the history of it, it really became more popular as more and more development happened with services that were hosted outside of your company or outside of your office. You know, you go back 20, 30 years and development shops would have their own internal servers literally in their office because they didn't have necessarily great connectivity out to the internet. Uh, you know, you'd be running 
CVS or Subversion or SourceSafe or something like that. And you might have a build server, but every single company would be doing it on its own setup completely independently. Uh, and now that so much development for those sorts of companies and industries happens on cloud services anyways, uh, the ability to wire up some sort of continuous integration setup, even if it is ending up to be sort of self-hosted, is is way easier than it used to be. Let's take a step back and maybe even define what continuous integration is before we get too deep into it, if that's all right. You push code and stuff happens. <laughs> so I think it's 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 to to kind of bring it back to what Sally said. We had this magical set of scripts in a scripts directory that was quite persnickety and, and might not be perfect for everyone. And we make it perfect for everyone by outsourcing all of those tasks to one place. Although that was probably even a step too far. Like before that, um, <laughs> I like that Andrew also assumed that all these companies had some kind of version control. Which <laughs> also may not have been true. Yeah, um, it's, it's it my, like, my file dash two dash. This right. is the right one. <laughs> dot PHP. Like, well, to launch the website, just follow the instructions that Dave has written on the whiteboard um, <laughs> and just stick it on the FTP server and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. No, and I mean, like, if you go back far enough, it's kind of like, you know, I definitely did work on sites where there was like even Drupal sites that had zero version control. And you kind of have this evolution from FTP and you're just uploading files and doing it live all the time to sticking it into version control so that you have some record of what you're changing. And even if it's not automated, you're still using version control to somehow get your code out to those production sites to then hooking version control up to some other build system or continuous integration system. So uh, the actions that you would maybe have to do manually, like go to production and check out the latest code and make sure everything works, uh, were automated. Yeah, so like in my uh, particular project that I'm on right now, when I merge a pull request, a process goes where it uh, triggers a job which will maybe compile my SAS into CSS and my ES6 style JavaScript into you know, ES5 style JavaScript. It'll maybe run Composer and pull down all these dependencies, um, put everything together, then it will maybe write, it'll run some behat tests or something to make sure things are actually working. And at that point, it, it pushes that whole bundle of code that's, you know, a lot of it is dependencies that out, that's outside of my repo. It pushes that whole artifact up to a development server, which then people can kind of look at. So, yeah, so, so. What do we need to do to do things like that? I mean, is that, you know, I know, I think it was Sally that mentioned a bunch of bash scripts or maybe make files. I mean, how did it start? Uh, you know, I've heard Jenkins. I've heard the words circle, circle CI. I know uh, that Lullabot has a project, uh, product called Tugboat. What do we need to, to, to kind of get started on this? Well, so you mentioned Jenkins and... That was sort of one of the first popular ones that came out. That um, was called Hudson back then, yeah. I think. Um, and that is something that was self-hosted. It's a Java project. You could essentially paste your bash scripts into um, form fields and then have some jobs that you could click and, and run. And yeah, works pretty well. 
Sounds exciting uh, and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind exactly. of like turning PHP module on on a site and saying, well, I'll just write my modules here. <laughs> so interestingly, I used to write my first CI scripts with this package called Fing, which was all in like XML and... P-H-I-N-G, right? Yeah, I think that's like a really It's old still around. About it. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, it was good at the time. There wasn't like much else out there. Uh, anyway, but the, like Jenkins had all these kind of plugins and still does that you can read all these types of files and then it has its own steps that you can add. Like it knows about Git and GitHub and could put all those things in. The problem with running it with Jenkins, although you have the most amount of control possible is that you then have to administrate, uh, administer this service. So, you know, if you're self-hosting, there's all the problems that come with upgrading and so there's like a maintenance cost to having that um and you know if something goes wrong it's kind of on you to have to fix that and dave's, and so in, dave's instructions on the whiteboard have kind of turned into the jenkins server <laughs> that dave set up and knows how it yeah, works right. exactly mm -hmm. so um a lot of cloud services appear like circle ci um travis ci are they still around i know they had a lot travis of still is yeah, they okay. got bought by some other company and there was some big kerfuffle about yes. them. Uh, Codechip, uh, Beanstalk on AWS. There's like a billion of them now. Um, yeah, so, you know, they take all the maintenance uh, costs away, allegedly, though, obviously, because they have their own ways of doing things. As You know, you do get problems with each one of those, and each one does it slightly differently and whatnot. So is uh, now a good time to maybe talk about some of the ones that we like to use and maybe some of the drawbacks of, you know, you mentioned a drawback with Jenkins is that you have to host it and upgrade it yourself. Well, you know, what is the drawback with, say, CircleCI and or, you know, CodeShip or something like that besides maybe costs and things like that? Costs? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I love CircleCI. I use that for everything now um i'm trying to think what drawbacks are so it can be kind of tricky if you want to test uh a new job so a job is a task like a set of tasks that you want to do on your ci and if you're trying to do a new uh, like make a new set of steps that are going to run on this cloud service testing it could be really frustrating because if something goes wrong um sometimes you have to start all the work run the job from the beginning, get to a point where you think you fixed it and kind of keep going down. Circle CI does have some tools to help with that so that you can SSH into containers. Um, there's like a local command line tool as well where you can run some types of jobs locally, mm -hmm. but not all of them. Um, and sometimes it, it doesn't work in certain circumstances. But uh, yeah, it does make it a lot easier. But it can be a really... Uh, frustrating and slow process to get these jobs um, actually running in the way you want. The uh, thing that we found, so I've used CircleCI a ton on the past three or four projects I've been on. And I was actually on a project where there, ha there was originally a totally custom built Jenkins server that the client had set up. And when we looked at the time put in for maintaining it, even then CircleCI's costs were trivial compared to the hours that they'd put into maintaining their own Jenkins instance. And that might be different for your organization. If there's another team who's already maintaining just uh, maintaining Jenkins for you, then maybe that's the cheapest option. But as far as 
you know, I would say the, you know, there is obviously the cost factor with something like a circle CI that may or may not matter to your organization. Um, you know, the other side of it is if you're, you're using it as a really deep and integrated part of your development process, uh, when they go down and inevitably they will have downtime, uh, you can't do anything to fix it most of the time. Like you're just waiting on their team. And sometimes that can be a hard message to send to stakeholders. Sometimes it's easier. It just, it depends on your team. I've worked with teams where they would much be much happier to know that their own team can be responsible for th fixing things. Yeah, for, for better uh, or for worse though, right? It's like, it's your problem or it's not your problem. Which would you prefer? Right, exactly. Um, but then also what? like if you've hosted it, you're probably not hosting it in your office anymore. And so you still have the same problem. Like if you host it on AWS and there's a problem with AWS, you still can't fix it. Such is the cloud world we live in these days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, as but far you, but as you've duplicated right, across a couple of regions, right? On AWS, you've done it right. Man, everyone says they're going to do that, and no one actually does. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I've I've heard from you know, if you look at your own sites or your clients' sites, and just ask yourself how many of their production critical or you know, sort of critical websites or applications are actually hosted in multiple regions. And, you know, in the case of even like Drupal enterprise sites, very few of them ever are. So what are the chances if you don't have the engineering bandwidth to do that for the thing that you're actually building, that you're then going to do that for your build server environments with Jenkins or something else? You know, most of the time when, you know, we look at Jenkins servers that have already been set up, it's very much sort of the old school single big server with 64 gigs of RAM and a whole bunch of jobs on it instead of, you know, a hundred little tiny build nodes that if one of them goes down, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, there just tends to not be the the focus on resiliency that way. It's interesting that we've talked about this um, directory of scripts that turned into this nice task runner that does everything for us. And now it's mission critical. Like we, we've kind of made that leap into downtime in our CI system means we're down when really it was started out being you know, this is a nice thing to have. Well, it means you're down from a, probably from a deployment and development standpoint. Like if you're using CI to deploy to production and you had one scheduled and then there's an outage of any kind, then you can't do it, at least not easily. Uh, Manually, it's still possible, right? Because if you can program the CI system to do it, you can, you could push through it if you needed to, right? Yeah, it's just a, a question of how much time it takes to do that. And especially if you've got multiple systems that need to be in sync, as soon as you've got a person doing it by hand, there's a lot more room for error. I think it's also important to point out um, when we, we gave our early examples about what people are using CI for, I don't think we mentioned deployments. So Andrew, um, you, you kind of jumped into you know, using a CI system for deployments. How, how would that work and what would that look like? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the most recent example I have of that is you've got your, your Drupal site and masters your primary development branch, and then you're, you're ready to push something to production. So someone creates a tag and that goes through and, you know, automatically does all the build processes, meaning, uh, you know, composer install and NPM and all those other things. And then it would usually stop and someone would say, okay. I, I, I'm ready to actually push this to production now. I'm going to click the single button that resumes the workflow or resumes the job, 
and sends it all out. Uh, and you know, with Drupal sites in particular, we tend to do that because a lot of updates involve you know a tiny bit of downtime in terms of you know, database updates and those sorts of things. So you don't necessarily want it to be totally. I'm not going to say random, but you know, sort of at the mercies of how long your jobs takes to execute to determine when that process actually happens. Sure. And then there's another side of deploys where, like the the target that you're going to doesn't necessarily have all the things it needs yet. So you need a build step. Like in Drupal, you need to run Composer install. Um, maybe you want to remove test files or other sensitive files that you don't want to be out there. Yeah, I think the other thing that's you know, is really interesting from a like, you know, weighing the the pros and cons standpoint is that at least for me, having the the efficiency gains that you get from you just your day to day development of having a really finely tuned continuous integration setup far outweighs the the downsides of you know downtime or you know even maintenance of something like Jenkins totally on your own. Like I'd still rather have it than not, and. Maybe actually, maybe Sally, you could. It'd be interesting to hear from you, like what, from a you know sort of day to day development standpoint, what happens as far as you know continuous integration workflow goes, and how it changes the way you work. Um, it, so, one big thing is it saves us lots of time uh, because it has a really well, so. M most of my experience these days is with. Circle CI, if I have used others, so I'll just kind of talk about it in the context of Circle CI. Um, it has really tight integrations with GitHub. So um, anytime we're running tests and stuff like that, we can actually get it to generate all these really, really nice reports, um, which you can get posted back to uh, this new API that GitHub actually has, has actually. So it'll display kind of in one place. So I don't have to go in and be like, hey, by the way, the test failed, things like that. Um, so that feedback loops a lot quicker. Uh, in terms of deploying things, we can be quite hands-off for a lot of things. So like every time we make pull requests, um, we use RCI to spin up uh, environments of, uh, in Pantheon in the current project I'm on and on Heroku. So what, what is like, RCI? Uh, what do you mean? You said the word R or the letters RCI? Oh, our, our CI. Jeez. <laughs> All right. Strike that from the record. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. In the CI we're using on my current project, we're using it to spin up environments for all of our pull requests as well, which is really helpful for testing and also making sure that um, stakeholders can see what we've built is what they actually wanted. Uh, in our case, because the site I'm working on right now is decoupled on, it's got a bunch of services. Um, this is really great because being able to test stuff locally quickly sometimes can be a pain if someone's not doing development day to day. Um, so they can just click through and see all those environments, which is really good. Uh, and then um, we also have automatic deploys to, to staging environments, for example. So everyone can always see all the latest stuff that's going on. And we just don't have to think about any of that stuff anymore now it's all sort of in there and done which is really good saves me a lot of time back so, on the one thing you mentioned sally about you know it being integrated with github and providing metrics about you know you could have various tests and stuff like that one interesting side effect of that 
is on the emotional side of things for developers, we can have an agreed upon set of standards and we can write, we can program the tools to report on those standards. And it really takes like this personal aspect of, of peer review, you know, whereas previously it would be maybe the architect or someone else coming in and saying, oh, this is not, you know, this doesn't follow Drupal coding standards here. This needs to be updated. And it can feel those sorts of conversations can be tedious and they can also um, wear on the wear on the developers themselves thinking like, oh, I'm constantly being criticized by, <laughs> by my architect or, you know, or the lead developer or whoever it might be. And, and having software do that and just, and provide that feedback really takes sort of a emotional burden, I think, off of the project itself. Yes, I could not agree more. I've yeah. never heard of it there, in those terms, but it makes a lot of sense. There's a tool we use um, on our JavaScript projects called Prettier, um, which uh, just makes decisions about all those style things. Um, I don't know if there is, well, there's code sniffer for Drupal. We mm -hmm. use that as well. Um, and it's got some like extra vigilant standards that we've got turned on there too. So I think we're getting the same kind of stuff, but with Prettier, when you save the files, it can actually fix all the things for you, which is really nice. Yeah, the um, one of the things that we try and do in a lot of our projects is make sure that the tools that CI uses are the same tools that you run locally. And so on the project I'm on, it's all PHP code right now, but um, you know, we basically have the Drupal coding standards and I think we have like PHP mess detector and a couple other things like that. But basically we have the configurations committed to the repository. So you don't have to do anything. You can just run PHP CS or PHP CDF, which is, I imagine like prettier where basically it reformats your code for you. Um, and so, Wait, you what know, was that last one? I've never used that, Andrew. It comes with PHP CS. Like oh, it's is, this, part of, is that the thing that says that you, it will fix it for you if you let it? Right. Yes, yeah, the code beautifier. Exactly. I, I don't think I'm I'm confident enough in letting <laughs> tools change my code, but does it work well? Oh, I've never yeah, had really a good. Well, yes. The the only thing which is like let's say you have a requirement that every method has documentation, it's going to put in empty comment blocks above those methods for you, but obviously it's not going to write the documentation. So you know, as a developer, you'll have to run it and then run git diff and see what it actually did and see like, oh, okay, I've got to fill in the summary for this. Um, but yeah, it's it, it does it does enough it. to to make the code sniffing task shut up. Not quite. Oh, it will like in the example of a documentation fix, it will add the stubs for you. Like it'll maybe add the parameters and their types and so on, but the code sniffer will still fail unless you've disabled the rule, you know, because you haven't put the English descriptions of what you need to fill in. The stuff it can fully fix though, like if you use double quotes instead of single quotes in mm -hmm. your code style, what's one or the other, it will fix all that stuff for you. One so, of the common ones we run into is when you're doing a, a bit of refactor or something and you have some use statements up at the top that are no longer actually being used in your code. Yeah. And it'll just automate, you know, it'll let you know, hey, these use statements are still here even though you're not using them anymore. And then the the code beautifier will actually remove those for you. So it's saves mm -hmm. some time. 
So do you have to configure that or is there maybe like some configuration dot file included with Drupal that automatically will configure that? You know, how does it know tabs versus spaces and So I think know, Devel module has it all. It's coder. Oh, coder. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And and Mike it has a plugin. Uh, so it's PHP CS which is for like generic PHP stuff and Drupal has a plugin that has the Drupal standards. Okay. But there's two you can use. Correct. Um, one is Drupal, just Drupal, and that's kind of some basic things. And then there's another one called Drupal Practice, and that's like really finickety. That's the one I use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drupal Practice will do things like if you're calling out to Indrupalate to the global Drupal object, instead of using container inject or dependency injection, it will flag those and say, you know, you should not be using that. Uh, even though it is technically like valid code that works just fine, it'll have more of those sort of best practices uh, there. Yeah. So I find it works really well for new code bases because then you don't have any technical debt to deal with. It can be a problem if you're pulling it into a code base that uh, you know has either been sort of I'll say roughly ported from Drupal seven, uh, you know, where it was just like let's just get this working on Drupal eight instead of you know following all the Drupal eight best practices, mm -hmm. or just for custom code that you know wasn't following those things in the first place. I also want to state that as all these all of this terminology is kind of uh, going by me, I'm taking notes of everything, and we're gonna link everything and maybe add some descriptions for the show notes for everyone. So let's imagine for a second that Dave with the whiteboard from our previous example is listening and Dave says, holy crap, I need to figure out this Circle CI thing. And he goes to the website and he sees that Circle CI has a free tier. How long will that actually last for Dave? Is that, is uh, the that free tier is great because if, uh, it, so it gives you one container, um, which is like one instance of a virtual machine that will run and you can use that as much as you want. I think you can even use it across multiple private repositories. So the downside to that is when you start getting more jobs. So CycleCI has this concept of a workflow and you can have multiple jobs in that workflow. So say the first part is you build something and then you fan out into three different jobs that test three different services or run different kinds of tests. Um, then obviously it's going to be a bit slower because you only have one container available to do all of those things. And then you know, that's where they get you on the upgrade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you also get um, a restricted number of mi uh, build minutes, I think. So if you SSH into the containers, there's only a certain amount of time you can stay in there per month. I th SSH, I think, is special in that they they limit the, the, the job to two hours. Because if you have one container, say, and you've got a container paused waiting for you to connect into it, it's going to block every other job till you say, I'm done with this, please destroy this environment. Um, I think if you don't connect to any environment within 20 minutes, they right. just shut it down. Yep. The, the other thing that, you know, just I always sort of go for as a best practice is I really try to do as much as we can as far as the CI setup so that it's CI environment agnostic, meaning I use Circle CI's workflow features and so on, uh, you know, all their configuration as best I can. But as soon as I can, I drop out of the Circle CI configuration file into something like a bash script or a robo file, which is a, you know, a PHP task runner like Grunt or Gulp if you're coming from the JavaScript world. Uh, because then it means if Circle CI changes their model and, you know, 
is like we're no longer giving free private containers to anyone or we stop using you know offering open source projects free containers like whatever it is it's a lot easier to change to a competitor um and i feel like it also means that it makes it a lot easier to run those jobs locally uh you know you don't need to be in circle ci's infrastructure to do most of the work and you know in our case where we're typically using multiple ci providers like tugboat and circle ci we can you know for this the typical steps of like you know running drupal database updates and configuration imports and all of that uh we can share that without having to worry about only updating in one place yeah so we haven't actually gotten away from the the scripts directory necessarily but it's it's plugging it into these CI tools. So one of the things we do is uh, all of this infrastructure is in Docker containers. Um, so we use it for local development and then it's the same stack that gets spun up inside our test environment. So we know they're running with the same versions of everything and in the same place and using all the exact same scripts. So if you wanted to mm -hmm. run these things yourselves, the only thing you could like look through the steps of the CircleCI file do it manually. Um, and the only thing that we'd be missing would be the environment variables that haven't been injected in. So yeah. just, just to be clear on the, the circle CI and how stuff works, I see a thousand build minutes per month. Um, if I have tests that take 40 minutes, um, which I've been on a project that does, does that mean I can only do 25 and remain on the free tier? It you seems know, like so. They've reduced that. I think it used to be more than a thousand build oh, okay. minutes. Because I can't imagine, like, because that also means if you have five jobs that run in parallel, like, let's just say you have one that's like, typically it's, you know, maybe, well, I, I'd say you're paying for it at that point. But if you just imagine you have five jobs, like the code sniffer job, your test job, and, you know, maybe a hat test or something like that, like that's going to be running more minutes than just you know, one job by itself. And I'm sure they're paying for their, their processing, you know, time and their, 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 their cloud power anyway. And so it, it makes sense that they need to pass that on. I mean, you can't give everything away. You do run into this balance of like, how far do you optimize your CI jobs? Uh, you know, the first time you do something, you might discover that your tests take 20 minutes to run for whatever reason. And is it worth six hours of development time to make it so that they can run in 10 minutes? Uh, maybe. I mean, it depends how big your team is and how much development churn you have and so on. Um, and what your costs are to just throw more money at your CI provider for more parallel jobs. Um, but, you know, there is definitely, like I've worked on projects where the first pass of, say, a migration job uh, was hitting, you know, a general timeout, like it was taking longer than five hours. So CircleCI was just like, nope, this is not happening. And, you know, it then made sense to spend some time optimizing that. Uh, you know, the other thing we typically do uh, is uh, try and do sort of fan out configurations. And you can do this with any CI provider where, for example, maybe you've got three different jobs. I'll use an even simpler example, like two different jobs, one that checks code standards and one that runs uh, unit tests. They both need Composer to run before either one of them can work. And so you have one step, which is run Composer install, and then you tell CircleCI, okay, there are two new jobs, one for the tests and one for the CI, and they're going to use the same starting point as their base. So you're only running Composer once instead of twice. Uh, and obviously, you can get a lot more savings depending on how many jobs you have. 
why is circle the one that we've gravitated toward? Let's see. I, I for me, it was because uh, as much as Docker makes me angry, I think it's perfect for CI. Uh, now, now, Docker solutions. isn't okay. You're saying that Docker works well with CI solutions. Right. Okay. And Circle CI was one of the first that I was aware of where their entire infrastructure was built on Docker. So it meant you weren't dealing with uh, a lot of the performance issues you might have run into previous solutions. Um, I, for me, also at this point, it's a little bit of inertia. Like I've been using Circle CI for two, three years now, and it has yet to do something that makes me really want to look for something else. There are some other really ones like... that we haven't talked about, like, sorry, Sally. There's some no, other ones that we haven't talked about, like uh, GitLab CI and Bitbucket Pipelines. And those are, if, you, if you're if you using GitLab or Bitbucket, those are perfectly viable options as well. Um, mm -hmm. one, one thing, one advantage, though, to using something like Circle CI is that you are agnostic to whatever repository manager you're using. So there's a you know, there's kind of a catch 22 there where like, it's really convenient to use those because they're built into where you're hosting your repository. But then if in the future, uh, GitLab makes some change to their SLA, that means your company can no longer use it or something like that. Then you've got to switch everything over to some other CI provider or something like that. So, but it's honestly, also like, I'm a big fan of just using whatever tools you have, like, if you're already on GitLab and you're paying for GitLab's CI yeah. tools, like just use that until you find a reason not to use it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've yet to use a CI tool that was had such issues and was problematic in a way where I was like, well, I wish we just didn't do CI. Yep, I agree. Makes sense. I, th I believe GitHub has what, what GitHub Actions or something like that now. Is that correct? Well, I think it's still in the beta. And okay. seems to have not got out of the beta. So yeah, but Gmail was in beta for how many years, right? Yeah, but everyone could still use it. Right? Okay, so it isn't working, or it, it, I don't know. I oh, don't. Okay. I don't have access to it. Oh, okay. So it is. It's like a private beta. Well, they do that thing where it's like sign up to be on the waiting list, um, and there are other GitHub services that have launched since that people have signed up for and we got in a lot quicker so i don't action seem to have stalled a bit hmm. okay mm -hmm. so when you're writing these scripts uh like what what type of file like what type of format are they? is this like bash scripts is this like i know yaml or i i use uh sh because it's the, the most portable possible even though I'm probably making my life a little bit more difficult than it needs to be. Why would that make it more difficult? It seems very basic and, and understandable. Well, it, there's a few things that like Bash does a little bit better than SH. Wait, like, wait, you, you mean you literally use SH? I do. But it's also just because I, you know, I'm very familiar with it. And so, <laughs> and the reason I started using it, I think it was because like all these really slim Docker containers you get, they just don't have Bash. Yeah. Um, one of my colleagues and I, um, we maintain a set of starter scripts for Drupal sites. One set is for 
I'm building a Drupal site and that has, you know, content in a database and so on. And then the other is for I'm building a private module, like a Drupal module that is just not public for one reason or another. And in those, we do use a tiny bit of bash. Um, and then we also have a robo file, which is PHP. And, you know, again, I think I don't, I don't know if I could bring myself to use raw SH as far as like how low, you know, the, the features that it doesn't have compared to bash or whatever, but I would definitely say like, use the tooling that your team is familiar with. Like the reason we use robo files on a Drupal site is because you're writing in PHP. Like there's an expectation that if you're doing CI with Drupal, that you know enough PHP to, to work around something like that, you know, and I imagine it's the same thing with a JavaScript project. Um, you know, I, on some prior, uh, tools and, or sorry, prior projects, I know Sally, you have too, like we've used make files for CI, which I personally think is awesome. And, you know, I really like how it handles dependency resolution and all that kind of stuff. But the problem you run into it with it is that, oh, there isn't necessarily a lot of experience with make unless you have experience outside of sort of the modern web ecosystem. So then when you're passing it off to some other developer, uh, they might not be very happy with what they're inheriting. Yeah. Make is super cool. Everyone should use it. Um, <laughs> the thing is, I think because we're building websites, we're not compiling C programs with it. Actually, like the features that you use of Make are, are so small. I think they're actually pretty self-explanatory when you open them. And I, I inherited a project that had Robo once. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I know PHP, I just... I found it impossible to follow and impossible to debug. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm sifting through like this giant pile of files that's eventually just going to run one shell command. And it was just ridiculous. I was like, why don't you just write a shell command for goodness sake? Um, and James will love this because I used to, I used to use Grunt a lot as well. And he was like, you'd write all these things with JavaScript. And he's like, why don't you just write a shell command? I was like, no, 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 you should use it in the language that we're all working in and <laughs> completely changed my mind on that. It's just what's funny huge is pain. I've, I've now come around to the other side where no. I've, I've, no, I've been on so many projects where I've been like, no, we're using make or no, we're using bash scripts or whatever, because this is like the most explicit way that we can describe what we're doing here but then when something goes wrong it's like nobody know, like people get in there and they just don't know what's going on so on the project we're on now um the georgia.gov project we're not using robo but we're but we are uh we're, we're everything is uh drush commands mm -hmm. uh, which which pulls in robo and you can use all the the fun goodies of robo task running and rollbacks and all that stuff, which is pretty slick stuff. But I totally agree, Sally. Like when I first looked at robo stuff, I was just like, oh my gosh, this would be one line in shell and I would understand it. And, uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it took some getting used to. And now um, I'm seeing the benefit of both sides. Right, yeah, there are benefits to it. I just felt like anytime I hit like a real problem, ultimately it came down to whatever exact statement someone had written in some really deep robo file right um, and i was like god damn if i've just written this in the first place, <laughs> go through all of this and now i can't debug it and blah 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 there is see, that's the interesting thing though is like 
especially with migrations, I find there tends to be a lot of sort of just work that has to be done to, to run everything. And I love the fact that if I need to, I can literally debug the robo file in my IDE just like any other PHP command um, or PHP script. And, uh, you know, there was one time... Andrew, like, just use S-trace, come on. <laughs> I, I, I'm not I even joking. I, I, I have, I've definitely used S-trace before. Um, you know, the other thing, though, with something like, like Robo is if you run it in verbose mode, it will dump out every shell command that's being executed, every, you know, uh, git command or composer command, whatever it is you're running. And, uh, you know, I find that useful as well because sometimes... You know, I want to not debug the robo file, but I want to debug the command that's being run. You know, maybe it's a drush command to do something specific. And it's nice to be able to just have something I can copy and paste out and then run from there. Right on. Hey, we're talking CI on the Lullabot podcast coming up right after this uh, short break. We're going to talk about integration with other environments. Oftentimes Drupal projects deal with Acquia or Pantheon or that kind of thing. And we'll talk about how CI can work with within that setup. And we'll also hear from Andrew and Sally and James about what their ideal setup would look like coming up right after this. Hey, it's Nick from Drupal Camp Colorado. What's happening with this year's camp, Nick? We'll be at the King Center on the Auraria campus in downtown Denver, August 2nd through 4th. On Friday, we'll have trainings and summits. Saturday, we'll have keynotes, sessions, and then a party to cap the day off. And then we'll have mentored sprints on Sunday. As always, registration will be free, but a personal donation of 25 bucks or more gets you this year's custom design camp t-shirt and good Drupal karma. Keep an eye on our website for registration and session announcements at drupalcampcolorado.org. Welcome back. We're talking about continuous integration, aka CI, or as Sally calls it, RCI. <laughs> or, or the magic things that happen when we want things to happen. Like we want to tag a yeah. release and a bunch of magic happens, or we want to create a pull request and a bunch of magic happens. All these niceties that developers love. Yep. Uh, so uh, coming back into this, let's let's talk about how we integrate this into maybe some popular Drupal hosting environments. Yeah, as it uh, turns out, most people don't have their Drupal site on GoDaddy. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. So uh, a couple of popular ones that we've worked with before are Acquia and Pantheon, and maybe we can even talk about just kind of like maybe internal servers and maybe that what that would look like. So. Uh, who wants to go first and, and uh, pick a provider there? Who's integrated with Acquia before? James, I, I know that I think we've been on projects that were Acquia hosted and had great CI stuff working that you made happen. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier the Georgia.gov project. Um, so that's currently a multi-site setup uh, hosted on Acquia Cloud. And we're using CircleCI to build up, to run all of our automated tests and then also... Um, build up the the tag to that gets deployed to uh, to Acquia. So what that looks like from like the the programming side of things is we have uh, if if someone were to go to Bitbucket, which is where the repository is hosted, and clone the repository, they would not get the composer vendor directory. They wouldn't get Drupal core. We're using um, <clears throat> the Drupal composer project to uh to build up the site and so none of those 
you know, like contrib modules, anything that's required with Composer, any of the node modules that we're using for the theme, none of that stuff is actually in the repository or committed to the repository. And so the first thing when someone pushes up a tag um, to Bitbucket, we have a circle CI job that will listen for that and take that tag and then Wait, force Bit, Bitbucket and, and Acquia. So Acquia is then integrated with Bitbucket. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, so normally, or maybe not normally, but um, Acquia does have a Git hosted, you know, the, you, you get a Git URL and you can push directly to there. But we're not, none of the developers on this project are pushing directly to Acquia's Git repository. So instead, the repository is hosted on Bitbucket and the developers are pushing there. And then CircleCI bridges the gap between Bitbucket and the Acquia Git repository. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's the that's the gap I wanted to point out. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I uh, some of this stuff I start to take for granted, you know, uh, because we've been working in such a way for for a while. Um, so definitely pull those bits out as I forget. But uh, so yeah, we have a Circle CI job that's listening for tags and compiling. Uh, so it'll it'll run Composer install. Um, and they're, you know, with all the production flags that you want for a, for a composer install job to, to run and then builds up the theme and then force commits all of those to a new tag called, you know, like, so if you had a tag called V1, this particular script would then uh, create a new tag called V1 compiled and push that up to uh, Acquia. And then you could deploy that tag um, where you see fit on whichever environment. And automatically, we're also doing that where we push up, we have the dev environment that is checked out, the master-compiled branch. And so likewise, while we're listening for a tag, we're also listening for um, commits to the master branch and compiling that up and pushing that up to Acquia. There's some other uh, things that Acquia has, like Acquia has its concept of hooks. So when certain things happen, um, Acquia will automatically do other operations. For example, like if you copied a database over or if you updated a tag, you could set up shell scripts in there. So there's some stuff you can kind of get without having any sort of paid CI or even using you know something that might be built into your repository management so that you can use the Acquia hooks that are built in. They are kind of rudimentary and it feels like working in a black box a little bit. Um, so I find you know having some of the CI stuff there to be helpful. And can, their, can their hooks do do like the composer integration, run the, run the composer install and all that good stuff? I don't believe so. I mean, I guess theoretically you could you could install composer manually on various environments, but it doesn't seem like that would be a good best practice to recommend. So I think usually you'd want something to kind of bridge the gap or, you know, there, there is still something to be said for when, if some of that stuff feels, if you're on a small team or if it feels over your head, there's, there's not, there's really nothing wrong with committing those vendor directories and node modules to your project. I know it feels, can feel dirty or whatever, but sometimes, you know, it's like the, the simplest choice sometimes is the best. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure with Acquia, at least it used to be, and this is years out of date, that you don't have write access to your web code if you're 
logged in. So I don't think the hooks would have permission to, you know, actually yeah. write the vendor directory and so on. That makes sense. Um, the other thing I would, you know, watch out for is, you know, and if you're on a small team, this probably isn't going to matter as much. Um, but if you're using like, uh, you know, uh, development released modules from Drupal.org, those are going to be checked out as Git repositories, which means they become sub-modules within your vendor directory if you're committing that, which is really painful to deal with. And if you're on a small team, uh, you maybe never have had to deal with that before. So it can really throw developers for a loop. So, uh, you know, as long as you're sticking to stable tagged releases of Drupal modules, uh, it's fine, but just be careful of that edge case because uh, if you know you'll inevitably get bitten by it at some point. Right on. So not everything is in Acquia. We have options, um, and Pantheon is another popular platform. Um, Sally, I think you've done some work as far as integrating some great CI stuff within Pantheon, right? Yeah, it's actually quite similar to what you would do with Acquia. Um, or any cloud host, really. Uh, so yeah, you run all the composer install stuff, you check in all the vendor directories, it's a Pantheon's remote Git repository. Um, we do a couple of other things as well, like we have a specific Git ignore file just for what gets pushed to Pantheon's Git repo. So our CI will actually copy that file um, to, to be, instead of like .pantheon.gitignore to .gitignore, and that lets us prune out lots of things that we don't, necessarily want to be pushed up there like tests or i don't know secret things that probably shouldn't be checked in <laughs> um and then there's so there's a few kind of quirks about the pantheon platform that ci really helps us with um one of which is that pantheon doesn't support environment variables it does have something you can use with uh so terminus is its cli uh tool that they give you for managing Pantheon. And there's a plugin with that called Secrets. And it essentially fakes environment variables by sticking them into your private files directory. Um, you won't be able to use them as environment variables in your application. So you usually got to write like a little bit of glue code within Drupal to, to actually get those um, values out, but it, it kind of works. But uh, CI can really help you with that. So um, you can have something that will uh, loop through a certain set of environment variables that you set in your CI and then set them in your environment. So if you need to update those values, you would just update them in your um, CI environment first and, and then run the build and go through that way. Um, it also can help us with the releases. So uh, Pantheon has this like three-tiered dev stage live system. So if you don't really want to use any of those environments in between, which um, I have done on a couple of projects now, uh, because when you when you push something to master on the remote Pantheon repo, um, that goes to dev. And then if you want to go any further, you have to specifically create releases. But one thing you can't do is kind of very easily bypass that and push something um, to production uh, without it going through dev first. You can you can kind of create branches and, and tags and sort of uh, force it through, but there's a sort of a few consequences to that, like um, Nginx doesn't restart properly, for example. So um, in projects I've done where we want to have red, uh, sorry, uh, blue-green environments, for example, um, we just kind of skip that whole dev stage 
prod process and Devon stage do nothing and we just use the live environments, in which case CI is really helpful for us there because we can work it through all of those deployment steps without having to go into the Pantheon dashboard and do them manually every time. And the Terminus uh, CLI tool they provide is really, really useful for that. So you can install it in your CI environment and then um, interface with Pantheon really well. What is, a, you, you said blue-green environments? Um, so if you have two production environments um, and in order to do a deployment, you uh, don't want to bring down your environment for any time at all. So you can do what's called blue-green where um, if blue is live right now, we'll build our new site to the green stack. And then when that's completely ready, we'll switch the DNS over from blue to green. And so the users will never notice any kind of downtime. What will probably happen is that the editors will have the downtime instead because there'll probably be some shuffling around of databases because we can't have editors editing in both places, obviously. Okay. I hadn't heard the, of that um, uh, coming back into fashion, but it sounds a lot like changing a sim link on Apache old school. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's it's more common in systems that don't have user data being edited all the time. Uh, you know, and the editors really are just users editing your data. Um, and the you know, it, uh, most of the clients we end up working with, downtime for them ends up meaning downtime for editors and not the general public because they're already serving out cache copies of the site through Varnish and Akamai and so on. So, you know, with a lot of Drupal builds, like doing totally separate environments like that, uh, you know, is effectively the same thing as just letting it serve from Akamai. But the nice thing is, let's say you've got a deployment that takes 15 minutes because you have some big database change that you have to make uh, and then it goes wrong and you need to roll back. You're not having to roll back in the same environment. You just never flip the DNS in the first place. So there are some advantages that way. Yeah, and Pantheon actually also gives you a CDN by default, like Fastly. So um, if you're just doing little updates, again, it's one of those things like James said, it's like don't feel you have to do <laughs> all of these things. If you're just doing smaller kind of updates, then um, I think Pantheon will actually mask that for you with the CDN. So your users, users, if they're not logged in, shouldn't see any downtime. So what about um, maybe an, a, a non, you know, Acquia Pantheon environment? Um, Andrew, if you were to maybe set one up and you're going to use, you know, you're not, you don't want Pantheon Acquia or anything similar, mm -hmm. what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, I How's it going to work? I mean, I guess I would say from a, there's, there's two rules that I sort of follow when I am investigating these sorts of things for clients. And one is, you know, the hosting environment should be as simple as you can possibly make it. Um, you know, in my experience, even some of the biggest Drupal sites out there would be perfectly well hosted by, you know, two to five Linode instances with Fastly or Cloudflare or something in front of them, uh, you know, in comparison to like a really complex, you know, AWS Terraform, et cetera, setup. Um, and then on top of that is as much as possible, everything should be in Git. And that's really a prerequisite to true sort of CI nirvana in the sense of like, one, it allows you to test your changes, you know, before they go into production. So if you imagine 
uh, you need to, if you're self-hosting, you might need to update Apache or maybe, you know, maybe updates are probably not as good an example, but maybe you're installing uh, a new PHP module, like a, a MongoDB support or something like that. Uh, you want to be able to test that through CI and make sure that nothing breaks uh, with, with your hosting infrastructure. And if you're just doing that by hand, by SSHing into a server and installing the packages, then you're not able to do that. So, uh, you know, I'm actually on a project right now where the client doesn't have any environment set up. They are going to be self-hosting it internally, but uh, we've been developing for, I don't know, four months now. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's no environments. And so what we do there is we're using CircleCI to do all of the builds, all of the tests. Right now it's running unit tests, it's running BHAT tests, and then uh, another category, it's called existing site tests, which is this wonderful Drupal library that lets you run against, it basically lets you write Drupal tests against a real database without having to go through BHAT. And we're using it, this is a decoupled site, so we're using that to validate API responses from Drupal. But then on the other side of it, um, and again, completely managed in Git, we have uh, Tugboat set up, which was mentioned earlier, to act as our hosting environment. So for example, you know, we have a ticket open right now that's updating from PHP 7.2 to 7.3. And so we open a pull request, we uh, update the Docker containers both for Tugboat and Circle to go to 7.3 instead of 7.2, and we let all the tests run and we click around the site to make sure nothing's horribly broken. And then we we know it's good to go. And you know, for from my perspective, your if you're self-hosting, that should be your goal. You should be able to open a pull request and do something like update the PHP version and click around on your uh, you know, on your site, on your actual hosting environment and make sure everything works correctly. And you know, I would definitely say that depends on the size and budget of your team. Uh, you know, if you're really just a smaller site with one or two developers uh, or even less than one developer, like the amount of time it takes to get that level of automation is just not worth it. But if you're on a team of, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 developers, by the time you include, you know, front end, back end, ops people, uh, project managers and all of that, like having it all sort of in version control will really enable a, a proper sort of continuous integration workflow that doesn't have annoying manual steps that are frustrating and tricky to, to debug. Yeah, it brings I would also say of, that... Oh. I've interrupted you enough, Sally. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I, would, I would also say that um, whilst it is nice to be able to host anywhere, it can be tricky if you want to have more than one webhead just because Drupal expects this ephemeral file system to be there. And unless you want to be managing NFS or ClusterFS, that can get really tricky. Um, you can back it up with something. Uh, you can um, have it on something like S3, but that has its own problems because Drupal assumes that the file system is local in many places, and so it can act very slow because it thinks it's there and it's you know trying to write Twig cache files and all kinds of things. Yeah, and you know even something like I've set up sites before on Linode where, you know, using NFS for uh, file share sharing between, say, two webheads is, you know, pretty straightforward if you've done any sort of sysadmin work before. You know, it's basically 
one line in your your exports file and you can use the the private IP addresses that Linode provisions for you. Uh, you know, it's really a case of what your expertise is. If you're a Drupal developer whose you know line of knowledge ends at once it's on the server, I'm done, then obviously like self-hosting becomes way more daunting and it's definitely worth looking at some hosted service that's out there. Um, but for a lot of other people, you maybe are coming from a, a position where you're not just the developer, you are the in charge of all the website content, you're in charge of the hosting, you're in charge of backups and management. You know, it's one person who's doing everything, in which case, uh, you know, it it's really like, I mean, honestly, hosting Drupal these days is not any more complicated than it was 10 years ago. Just in a lot of cases, we we choose to make it more complicated for mostly good reasons, but not always. And then again, it's like Jenkins, like, yeah, it's one line to set up um, NFS, but are you going to be confident when it goes wrong that you can recover from that? I'll fix it. Sally, uh, you've worked on a number of decoupled Drupal projects. How does the CI process differ from like maybe a traditional, you know, Drupal instance? So there's lots of different environments that you need to test. Um, you have your Drupal stack, which is like your PHP stuff, and then there's probably a Node stack that you need to test. And so they're going to have completely different. Um, I mean, if it was Docker, it'd be completely different base images, probably. Um, and then they're probably also going to go to different hosts and they're going to have all their own requirements and setups and stuff because, um, for example, if we're going to Pantheon, they don't host any node things. And so you might have to go to Heroku for stuff like that. And also just the proliferation of everything being a different cloud service. The more microservices you have, the more that your CI is going to have to interact with um you know, whatever maintenance tasks it needs to do for all of those. But other than that, it's, you know, not too different. I think a lot of it depends on how your teams are structured. Like, in my experience, if you're building a decoupled site, hopefully that's because you've got a ton of different consumers who are separate teams who are consuming a stable API. And, you know, you've got your iOS app team and your Android app team and your web app team, in which case as a Drupal developer, it might actually be, uh, it might actually simplify your CI workflow because you don't care about anything beyond say the editorial experience and that the APIs are working correctly. Uh, you know, it might not be your responsibility to test that the website front end is working. Um, you know, or likewise, if you're working on the front end teams, uh, you know, maybe you have mock servers that are just providing static API data. So you're not dependent on, you know, that backend team in terms of, you know, dev stage prod QA workflows and so on. Um, you know, I would definitely say like, if you are a team where you're doing everything, uh, it, you know, Sally's right on that it's more complicated just because you have more stuff to deal with. Uh, and even if you're not dealing with a separate technology stack, uh, I worked with a team where they were decoupled, but the front end was actually a PHP application that was just using Twig to then render things out. So it was like Drupal feeding another PHP app that then was going out to the, the public. You still got another PHP app that you have to host or manage. Um, for the project I'm on right now, we're actually uh, running a copy of the, the React app in Tugboat 
so that it's pointed to the Drupal site that's running against the same pull request. So basically for every pull request you, you run, you get a full copy of Drupal, you get a full copy of the React app, and if you want to test things end-to-end, -end, you can. Uh, and it works you know, pretty well. And you know, it's one of those things where it's like once it's set up, you generally don't have to spend a lot of time tweaking it, which is nice. But I would say from a time investment standpoint, it was probably twice as much time to set it up as if it had been a full-stack Drupal website just because you have to set up Drupal and then you have to change all your gears over to setting up Node. Um, it just reminded me of a really fun problem we have right now with our decoupled um, stack, which we've almost solved. Um, when we when we spin up uh, for a pull request, each of these separate environments, um, so our CI goes off and does that, um, we actually need to connect each separate service to the relevant separate service that's been brought up. So um, like we have this GraphQL content API, and so it needs to know uh, what multi-dev environment it lives in on Pantheon. So we have to change those environment variables and, and point them that way every time we spin them up. Um, and so we just started using a service called DNS Simple because we have this extra added problem where we're using, um, so we have multilingual and translation in the front end app, which is React. And each one of those is a separate domain. So we need to set up uh, separate subdomains for every single PR that we spin up so that we can test all of those and make sure it works. So um, we have our CI going to, uh, to simple DNS, I think, and it sets all of those up on every pull request and tears them all down and does all that stuff too, um, which just would be impossible to do if we didn't have it. So, hey, uh, who here wants to talk a little bit about Tugboat? We mentioned it a couple times. Yeah, so uh, Tugboat, tugboat.qa. It's a Lullabot pro project. <laughs> it's a product. Product. But yeah, it's a Lullabot product. Um, it, deployment previews for every pull request is what the website says. So how does CI fit into a project that might use Tugboat? Or how does Tugboat fit into the proje a project that might use CI? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is Tugboat started as this kind of brings things full circle. It started as a Jenkins install and a bunch of bash scripts. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, a Jenkins plugin that was like a GitHub pull request builder. And uh, we were working on a project for Intel at the time. And the, the stakeholder for that project was um, very technical and could could have set up the site and tested out all the work that we were doing, but he was also very busy and had like five other projects that he was managing. And uh, so as I was staring at Jenkins and uh, I was thinking, huh, what's this GitHub pull request builder thing? So I turned it on and I started just tinkering a little bit and created some glue code and voila, you know, like a couple days later, I had this very, very rudimentary like when someone would create a pull request, it would build the Drupal site um, using recent database dumps and then comment back to GitHub with a link to, the, to an environment where you could preview it. Um, and that was the genesis of what later became Tugboat. And now it's, it, back then it was just, you know, PHP and Apache was in, and MySQL were all installed on the Jenkins box. And now it's all Docker-based and Node-based and uh, much more mature. And I know almost nothing about how it works. 
<laughs> However, the <laughs> the uh, the use case is still the same, which is when work gets created by a developer and pushed up for review, and normally that's in the form of a pull request, Tugboat will detect that and create a preview of that work before, and with it actually merged into it. Like if you create a branch off of master and then you create a pull request to get that merged back into master, Tugboat will take that, that branch, merge it into master. So it is a true continuous integration because it's integrating the work with the work that may have changed, you know, things that may have changed since the developer started that, that work. And then, um, provide a way for QA for stakeholders to sign off on it by, by providing a link to that work. And now it works with uh, providers like GitLab and Bitbucket and maybe your own Git server, right? Yeah, you can uh, you can have it work with GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, or a private hosted repo, and you can even have it uh, the enterprise. You can have it. Um, behind your, your VPN or behind your private network. Mm -hmm. And uh, like to configure it, it's just like basically a big YAML configuration file where you specify the Docker containers and the, uh, and, and like maybe the scripts that run within those Docker containers. So you might have a Docker container for like PHP and another for MySQL mm -hmm. or something like that, right? Yeah, it's similar to some of the other uh, CI tools out there. Uh -huh. And uh, in that, you're using a lot of YAML nastiness. <laughs> it's yeah. a blessing and a curse. To, YAML is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> yeah, and then those YAML files are committed to the repo, so you can change it. And, and uh, something that's relatively new that I, I'm actually kind of excited about with Tugboat is that there's now a kind of really easy visual uh, diff integra integration. So, like, you know, I'm a... You know, I make a CSS change, but, uh, you know, maybe the CSS code base is just like a pile of crap. And I want to <laughs> make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm maybe doing some refactor, but I don't want anything else to be affected. So what I can do is like within that um, YAML file, I, I put in a section and, and I've, I think it's like visual diffs or something. I specify a, a list of paths, you know, for it to look for it to check and what what tugboat will automatically do is it'll uh it'll fire up uh you know it'll it'll look at the base preview which is like the current maybe version of master or something like that and then it'll it'll look at you know your particular your particular branches version and it will compare the paths for each of those and on every single uh one of those paths uh for multiple breakpoints by default we have like three breakpoints um it will actually show images with a kind of a, you know, the base preview and then your, your branch, and then it'll show a difference, you know, and the, and the difference is basically the changes highlighted in like some type of neon pink. So what I typically do is if I'm making changes like this, I, 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 I basically look at this big long page, you know, it, it'll link to a big page that has all the visual diffs and, you know, it takes a while for all the images to load. And then as you scroll down, you can look for some areas of pink that aren't supposed to be there. And then when you look for these areas of pink, you can be like, oh, no, it's creating a, it's, why is it changing this margin? This has nothing to do with what I'm doing. And at that point, you can go in and you can maybe fix that or make, make your selectors a little bit more specific or something like that. I, th I think that's honestly pretty fantastic. 
the um the way I like to sort of break it down on the projects I'm on is that tugboat is for when you want something interactive, meaning I need a URL I can go and click around and do something with, and that stays until I basically decide that I'm done with it. Uh, whereas most CI tools that are out there, uh, you don't have direct access to the jobs that are running except in debugging scenarios. So you open the pull request, they run the jobs, they report back, and then they delete everything and clean everything up. Um, which is not, you know, the if you're building something which is a purely API code, that might be all you need. But uh, as Drupal developers, in the end, we're building something which lives in a web browser that humans are going to use, which means humans need to be in that loop somewhere. Um, I actually, on the on one recent project, we actually are using CircleCI and Tugboat together in a really neat way. So we have CircleCI configured to run the content migration every three hours, uh, where it pulls down the latest database from the Drupal 7 site, runs the content migration with the latest code in master, and then it actually saves the resulting database into a Docker container, and we're using um, k.io, q-u-a-y. Is that how you pronounce that? I always get it mixed up. I thought it was key. Key. Yeah. Well, there we go. Today I learned. It looks uh, like way. Like, <laughs> it's like a marine thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a war. Marina. Sorry. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it pushes the, the Docker container up with that database sort of committed inside of the Docker container. And then every time Tugboat spins up, it pulls down that Docker container with the migrated content already in it. So that way it only takes. You know, it's very quick to to spin up, uh, and so you know, having Circle to sort of do all of the basically anything which is machine driven, and then Tugboat can use that to feed its own systems is uh, it works really well for us. And something else to to mention is that Tugboat works with pretty much every type of technical stack, like including. Yeah, you know, WordPress or outside JavaScript of Drupal, yep. Backs or Laravel. It yeah. has to be on Linux and Docker. Yeah, and the that's end, like right? everything, right? So, so maybe like no, no <laughs> ASP.NET. Exactly. Well, you could use ASP.NET Core on Linux now, Ooh. so that'd be fine. Cool. There, All right. There are other tools out there too for like I think Tugboat's niche is is a a, da a large database backed whatever it might be, but there if you're just doing like a spa you know, like a um, node uh, application that doesn't really care about the data backend or whatever, um, now.sh, or maybe there's some other ones that Sally might know that. <laughs> I was about to suggest now.sh. Yeah. They're so, amazing. Yeah, there, there are other tools out there for, for things that aren't like a Drupal site or, a, you know, something that's, that's data backed. I think that's really where Tugboat shines is something that has, um, data that needs to also be a part of the, the review process. So it's not just reviewing the code, but it's being integrated with other people's code and with the data that's coming from prod. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, for me, at least it's one of those things where it's like anything is better than a shared development environment or a shared. Environment. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. you know, I, in my mind, like as soon as you get to a world where you have environments per QA or sorry, per pull request that you can click around in and that is automated. Like that is just such a step ahead of manual or shared environments. Uh, you know, 
there's nothing that I find more frustrating than joining a project and finding out that, you know, oh, it's going to take us an additional three weeks to spin up a second QA environment because we've got another team who's uh, working on some totally unrelated part of the site, but they already own this environment and, you know, we can't be stepping on each other's toes. So as we point toward wrapping things up, I do want to just point out one thing. I think Sally mentioned something about it earlier, but I just wanted to kind of make a good clarification. Um, one thing that was said earlier when we talked about having this big bash or folder full of bash scripts um, is that you might have passwords and other secrets in there. Um, how do we handle that um, in this era? Like what's the best way to, to store uh, secrets that you know everybody needs to have, but we don't need to be spreading secrets? Yeah, so first, if you can avoid having them on your developers' machines, that's excellent. You should definitely do that. So, you know, if if you have a key for API access, um, developers should have their own keys, um, probably with a, to a different environment or, you know, a restricted data set kind of stuff. Um, for any credentials, don't pass them around in Slack. Use a password manager, um, one password and last pass have sharing facilities for teams for that. Um, and then when it comes to actually injecting them, most CI tools will have some way you can put environment variables. They won't show up in the UI in Cycle CI, for example. Um, so you can pop them in there and then have it set it um, in whatever environment it needs to. Uh, the problem with that is, is that anyone who has access to your CI environment now has access to those secrets. So if you let your developers SSH into containers, they can now get into those secrets. I think one way around that with CircleCI is that they have different contexts. So you can protect certain environment variables. Um, so like they wouldn't be available in certain jobs and things like that. So um, you could say only for this like production deploy context, can they access this set of environment variables and you know, most developers <laughs> hopefully wouldn't need to SSH and to debug that one. Um, that's why we're doing it. And that's kind of, uh, I'm coming at it from the context of the service. I was pushing to not supporting environment variables properly. Um, for Heroku, for example, you, you just set them with Heroku. Um, and then you don't really need to mess around with them too much. I think in when I when I think of it from sort of a best practices standpoint, like uh, you know, the not sharing secrets is sort of the step one that I think if you do that, you are already doing uh, fairly well. Meaning, you know, don't have simple, easy to get passwords for admin access to API services and so on. Like, make sure they're unique. Make sure that. You know, if you're doling out passwords, say, for development environments, if you have the ability to make them so they only have read-only access to the API instead of read-write, if you don't need write access, then, you know, just don't grant that in the first place. Uh, it really helps reduce the attack surface. Uh, because, uh, you know, the other thing to, to consider is, and this is more if you're setting up a public project, but maybe you're working on a Drupal module or a PHP library or a JavaScript library and you're setting up continuous integration for it is what happens for pull requests from the, gen, you know, from the rest of the world. And most tools have some way to control how secrets are handled. So, uh, you know, there's usually an option which can say, 
you know, don't pass environment variables to pull requests from forks. Meaning if I just fork your repository and submit a pull request, it might run the jobs, but then it might skip anything that's a, a functional or integration test that requires API keys. Um, you know, there that matters less in sort of a private scenario where you implicitly are trusting all your developers because they're employees and coworkers and so on. And, you know, there are other ways to, to get into those things, but it also depends on what kind of data you're handling. Like, and bear in mind, employees can leave as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, if someone leaves under unfortunate bad circumstances, if you haven't rotated your keys and you've not given them a unique key, then they still have access to all of those things. Mm-hmm. Which brings up another point that's, that's a be- best practice as far as uh, connecting all these various services is a lot of times what we'll do on, for example, Pantheon, if we need uh, CI to be able to connect to Pantheon is to create a user, a bot user is what we call them, to integrate with Pantheon and just provide the permissions that we need there so that you're not putting your own token for Pantheon into, say, Tugboat or Circle CI or something like that 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 needs to integrate with Terminus. Um, that way you Otherwise, like if I'm if I put if I go into Circle CI and I put my terminus token in there, my personal one, now that Circle CI job doesn't only just have access to my project, but it also has or that this particular project, but it also has access to all my other projects that I might have been granted to. So then any other developer that has access to that can now get into any other project that I'm on, if that makes sense. Or or you leave and delete your token. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then suddenly everything breaks. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other thing about it is um, create the bot user with an email address that can be accessed yes. uh, by other people. So, like, if I, it's all very well if I create this bot user, but if I've used sally.young at Lullabot to, to do it mm-hmm. um, or my own personal one and I leave, I could still get in there, mess things up. Yeah, ideally it would be owned something that's owned by the it, in our case since we're working with our clients, you know, we want something that the client owns so that if they're not locked in to us either when they move on, it's not like, oh goodness, we've got to transfer the ownership of this over to them. It's something that they own and they've given us access to and uh and then therefore they can manage it. Let's uh, go ahead and wrap it up. Um, so one one final question to keep it kind of short and sweet here is um, if you have one particular problem within continuous integration or something that always bugs you and you could just kind of get it solved for free, what is it? And uh, maybe we'll start with Andrew. One problem that bugs me. Yeah, something that's just a pain in the, pain in the ass every single time. Yeah, I'm trying to think of something that is, you know, you know what, like the thing that is really ridiculous about all this in the end is like, we are basically dealing with a web of services. Mm -hmm. Like if you imagine what happens when you follow a pull request, uh, you're dependent on say CircleCI, you're probably dependent somehow through that on AWS or whoever their hosting platform is. You're dependent on Composer and whoever their hosting platform is. You're dependent on NPM and whoever their hosting platform is. You're probably dependent on Drupal.org and all that being up. And that's just thinking about building. Like who knows what other services your specific site is integrating with as far as, you know, 
pulling in data or APIs and all that. So if any one of those goes down, you file a pull request and your job has failed. And you're like looking at logs and seeing, oh, it failed because Drupal.org is undergoing maintenance for some reason, or there's an outage and it can't download the ctools module or whatever it is it's supposed to be doing. Uh, but as a developer, that always sucks up five to 10 minutes of time just to figure out what that is. Um, I, you know, as far as having it being solved, it is really nice that some t services like CircleCI, their status page is not just for themselves. They ha include on their status page the status of every dependent service that they are dependent on, as well as services that are commonly used, like, say, GitHub. So, you know, CircleCI might uh, be having an outage because GitHub is not sending webhooks properly, which has happened on more than once in the past. And so, you know, they'll reflect that in their status as, you know, affecting their service. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still, you know, it, you have that initial, like, I swear everything passed. Why did my job fail? Uh, <laughs> which is never fun. Gotcha. Yeah, we stand on the shoulders of shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, uh, James. Any uh, any uh, pains in in your world? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm struggling to think of something. I mean, I think in general, the the challenge is deciding how much magic to introduce, because it does. While it's really convenient and makes things easy, um, when it goes wrong, you're still face to face with okay there's only a select few of people understand really what's going on here. And even if that's not true, ultimately, like someone could open it up and see, Oh, here's, I, I see where this is happening. There's still, I think an intimidation factor there for a lot of people. They think like that, you know, whoever's working on the, on the CI stuff is some sort of magician or something. And like, they understand it and it's like way over my head, but it's really not like once you get in there, you're like, Oh, okay, this is, this is just a YAML file that <laughs> executes these certain commands at a certain point. And, uh, and sure it uses a, its own particular syntax, but I guess I get, you know, just getting back to the, the choosing the, level of convenience that you want that's right for the project is uh it's challenging always because the magic when it unravels is it's challenging to kind of figure out where it where it's broken and how to fix it and then you it's not just figuring that out for yourself but also figuring it out with your own stakeholders uh i've worked with teams where there's you know when it comes down to it these stakeholders will just say well, I don't care that the tests are failing, deploy it to production anyways, uh, because in their mind, that's more important, or they would rather the team work on features than getting tests passing or CI fixed again. And so, you know, in those cases, it's a huge opportunity, like, is it just a huge sunk cost that you've spent this time setting up testing and CI and all that just to not actually follow it when it's trying to tell you something important? So, yeah, uh, you know, you have to have buy-in from your your non-technical stakeholders on the team as well. Sally, any, anything that uh, is a pain on your side? Yeah, it would be really nice if we didn't try to turn YAML into a programming language. <laughs> like every new, every new feature that comes out, it's like, well, now you can do if statements in YAML and loops, and you can do more and more things. I'm like, oh, it's just great bash script. 
All right. All right. One thing, Mike, that I did tease before the break and I wanted to get to it was we talked about an ideal setup real quick for each of you. Um, talk about what an ideal setup would look like these days. Let's start with Andrew. Um, yeah, I mean, it's basically probably Circle CI, Tugboat, Robo, uh, tests for everything and time allocated to actually write the tests. Sally. Um, I. I don't know. As long as I've got Circle CI and Docker, I'm good. James? Uh, I'd say GitHub, Circle CI, Tugboat, and I agree with Andrew having the time to write the tests that we need. Um, definitely. Mike, do you have anything that uh, you'd like to add or maybe what, what, what it would look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I from my point of view, uh, typically the backend developer on my project uh, typically spits stuff out. But like for me, I just like to uh, ensure that the CI process is compiling or transpiling my SAS and, you know, ES6 style JavaScript just so I don't have to commit, you know, my CSS to the repo and get tons of merge conflicts and stuff like that. My, my ideal setup involves one of these nice people doing it for me. Yes. Yes. I agree. If I could have Andrew or, or Sally be on a project with them and then I could just sit back. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Bye.